Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is March 15th, 2018, the Ides of March. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Jonathan Last and Christine Rosen of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me this morning. Hey, Charlie. Hi. Okay, I, uh, we, we have so much uh, news to talk about. I want to start with uh, the story that uh, that I think I feel most strongly about, putting dogs in airline bins. Have you seen this story about United Airlines? Uh, apparently made uh, this uh, this family put their, their little uh, puppy, Coquito, up in a heated bin in a flight. And by the time they got to Houston, the dog was dead. And, and so, so, of course, members of Congress are talking about possibly passing federal legislation. <laughs> is that better or worse than what Mitt Romney did? Yeah, this is way worse. <laughs> Doug, is this, this worse? Is way, you're well, setting have you ever the bar seen low. How cramped those bins are. <laughs> well, you know? so I, I have to tell you, I have a, I have a dog that we got as a puppy not long ago, and the first thought I had hearing that story was, who would have agreed to that? I mean, who would have actually taken the puppy and stuffed it in the overhead bin? Why not? You know, this is, this is America. You're supposed to have a dramatic public scene and be dragged screaming from the airplane and then become a YouTube hero. I mean, why? Who did this? Were they already in flight? I, I was curious as to why anyone who has an adorable puppy would agree to shove it into the overhead bin. Yes. And, and, and why at some point don't you get up and take it out? That's actually a really, really good point. Um, believe it or not, a year ago, we, we got a puppy in, in Georgia and brought it home in one of those little carrying cases, put it under the seat in front of us. Never thought it was possible. This is now a 100-pound German Shepherd, but at that point was able to be in the carrying case under the seat. But, you know, I don't know whether I've ranted about this on the podcast before, but I think the entire business model of U.S. airlines is based on, on, on humiliation and degradation. They make it as uncomfortable and humiliating as possible and then say, hey, for $50, would you like to make Slightly it less, less humiliation? humiliation? <laughs> there was actually a Wall Street Journal piece about this a few years back. Uh, there's yeah. a whole class of like the Ryanair and Frontier model where the idea is to make things more deliberately more uncomfortable for passengers so that you can then extract more money for them exactly as you say. I, you know, I have I a question be- for I you, I believe both. that's literally true. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not, not even kidding. My sense uh, is that 15 years ago, Airline employees, from the people you spoke to on the phone taking tickets to the, the you know taking your reservations to the people you dealt with at check-in to the people who were on your your plane, were among the most helpful and kind people mm-hmm. in any industry that I ever encountered anywhere, and that that has simply ceased to be the case. <laughs> I mean, when you see, when you see like example after example, maybe maybe it was never true, maybe. It, Maybe the problem is the customers have become worse, and these these poor folks are just reacting against that. I, does that strike you guys as the case, or no? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I think it varies between airlines. The people from Southwest Airlines are still very, very friendly. Um, the, the, the people from people from air from like American Airlines are just sort of waiting for you to die. I mean, it's just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> different business models. Well, there, there is there, it's the downstream effect, right? I mean, we talk about this in politics all the time, but it's true in any business where if if you're treating your employees badly, they're going to pass along that stress to someone. Unless the only place I know this not to be the case is Walt Disney World, because they're you know rigorously trained like cult members to behave in certain ways. They're always performing, they're always on, and or they're always heavily medicated. Is my personal theory, but it strikes me. I'm in me, favor of this, by the way. I mean, I feel bad for people who are especially who uh, work, you know, 
dealing with the American public who are being, you know, who are larger than ever, crammed into smaller seats than ever, and demand that their, you know, emotional support animals, whatever they are, should be allowed free, you know, reign of the plane. So I, I'm actually on the side of the, the beleaguered worker here, which is not the normal sort of position I take. But I think they're under a lot of strain, too. Um, and it comes from the top. It, it, it does. OK, so uh, where do we start today? Uh, Donald Trump bragging about uh, making shit up in a conversation with the prime minister of, of Canada. The president of the United States uh, actually very proud of the fact uh, that he challenged Justin Trudeau on whether or not uh, America had a trade deficit with Canada. It doesn't. This is that's actually a fact. We don't have a trade deficit, but he didn't know that and essentially, um, you know, claimed to uh, Trudeau that that he did. And, and now he's telling the story and still claiming that America has a trade deficit. So what, what do we make of this? Is this same old, same old Donald Trump, Jonathan? Yeah, yeah, it is. In a way, though, I think this is evidence of something that I've always thought is an enormous strength for Donald Trump, which is his total inability to feel shame. And I mean this on like, you know, I don't mean like, oh, it's a character defect or something. I just mean that at at some sort of molecular level, he couldn't feel it even if he wanted to. It's like a superpower. It is kind of like a superpower, because if you are simply incapable of feeling shame, then there is almost no limit to the things you can say and do. Uh, You know, I mean, there's no such thing as a gaffe with Donald Trump where, you know, that is one thing this administration will have that will be different from every other administration that has ever come before. There will never be a case of Trump coming out and saying, you know, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. I shouldn't have said that or something like that. Because he, he legitimately never feels that way. Well, and, and he seems to be clearing the field in his cabinet and his staff, um, eliminating people who might say things like, uh, Mr. President, you're actually wrong about that. Yeah. Well, this is what didn't didn't uh, didn't Larry. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. It was Peter Navarro who said this yes. in a business weekend. He said, my my job is to to support and validate the president's instincts. I thought, really? Wow. That's an interesting job you've got there. <laughs> It's it, it's a it's a new definition of expertise, right? My job, I'm I'm the secretary for confirmation bias, <laughs> right? Well, there is. So, if you look at how um, anyone who studies uh, child development, there's that point where children begin to experience embarrassment. So you know, before a certain age, they can do anything and they really don't feel the kind of shame or or, or the internal experience of shame of embarrassment. You know, you can't really be embarrassed when you're alone by yourself. And it strikes me that there's a developmental stage there that perhaps Trump just skipped over in toddlerhood where he's incapable <laughs> of being embarrassed or shamed. And as Jonathan says, that that is a kind of weird superpower. I also just, someone has to note for the record, the way he's been talking about some of his closest aides lately. Um, didn't he talk about, you know, with Pompeo, you know, chemistry, we've got great chemistry, we've got really good chemistry. And this whole Trudeau nonsense, I mm-hmm. remember the Post reported him saying, nice guy, good looking guy. I mean, there's this strange kind of, it, it's not quite bro talk, but there's a weird sort of personalization, whether it's about appearance or chemistry that, that you don't usually hear from a president. This and goes back to the Robert Pattinson, Christian Stewart stuff, too. Remember yes, when he was exactly. like weighing on Twitter, like, hey, Robert, <laughs> you could do better than this. Believe me, you're a good looking guy. <laughs> Speaking of which, 
I want to talk about Stormy Daniels for a moment. Now, the reason I want to talk about Stormy Daniels... <laughs> chemistry. Is, you want to talk about <laughs> chemistry, Charlie. I, good segue, I actually, Charlie. Well, there was, there was obviously chemistry and everything, and she's apparently his type. But um, I, was, uh, I was on a show yesterday with Stormy Daniels' lawyer, who was very, very interesting, talking about the upcoming 60 Minutes uh, interview and the legal process. And it really struck me that this is almost a case of the dog that didn't bark. Why is Donald Trump not doing to Stormy Daniels what he's done to everybody else. They're, they're not attacking her. They're not demeaning her. You're not seeing, uh, you know, exposés and, and, you know, outrageous segments on Fox News. It really makes you think that, that she may be one of the first or few people that Donald Trump's actually worried about insulting. Or maybe, Charlie, he just has genuine feelings for her. There's that possibility. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. They had a connection on a deeper personal level, mm -hmm. Charlie, he, and he, he respects her he as a woman mm -hmm. and a person. You know, she's he, also, can I just butt in here to say, yes. she's, no pun intended, she's a real businesswoman. I mean, this woman is, is you know, she obviously understands that life as a porn actress does not have the you know longest shelf life. She is working it. I mean, part of the reason everyone's asking why the CBS News interview hasn't aired, I'm thinking every day it doesn't air. She goes to a different strip club and makes, you know, however much money she's making for these appearances. The woman is not stupid. She's a kind of entrepreneur that, you know, she's not the hooker with the heart of gold that everyone likes to pat on the head and see reform. She's actually owning her her whole persona and she's profiting from it. And in a way, I mean, maybe he respects her business acumen in that regard. Yeah, well, watching the lawyer was very interesting because, of course, he's very careful not to say, uh, you know, not to, you know, go beyond his brief, not to say, you know, too much. But it was very clear. There were a couple of questions that he answered when Nicole Wallace asked, including, you know, if the president actually denies having an affair with Stormy Daniels, uh, what would your response be? And he would say, well, you know, I would welcome that because I can prove 100 percent that is not true. Now, having sat there with him watching the questions, he wouldn't answer. It's like, OK, what do you mean 100 percent? What do you have? I mean, you have a blue dress. You have tape. What? I don't know. But I would I would say that uh, if, if I'm in the Trump White House and I'm watching that, I'm thinking, OK, you got North Korea, you got Iran, you got all of those things. But maybe the big problem, I mean, who knew that Donald Trump might actually go down because of a porn star that he paid hush money to? I mean, how, how bizarre would that be? Speaking of frauds, Jonathan, uh, you, you mentioned earlier this morning this Theranos story, the the story of this company that turns out to be a complete and total fraud. It's amazing, is it? I, it is amazing. So Christine is obsessed with this. Can I can I actually toss to Christine because I want to <laughs> just put a quarter in the machine and let her go for it? It's true, actually. He had to. He, we were talking about this uh, earlier, and 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 I had to be ushered out of the room um, in a mild state of panic. Um, so. This Theranos story is really, and Jonathan and I were talking about this, it's really also, a, it's not just a story of massive fraud, which it which it is, and, and I think more and more of that will continue to be unraveled as, as the days and weeks go on, but it's also a story about how sycophantic our relationship is to Silicon Valley, because as Jonathan correctly pointed out to me, he doubts that Elizabeth Holmes, who is, you know, the kind of hotter, younger, blonder version of Steve Jobs, or at least that's how she was treated mm -hmm. by the media, there's no way a sort of aging uh, woman with gray hair or a schlumpy guy would have raised this kind of money for 
so questionable an idea or business. So, you know, I remember she was getting layouts in the women's magazines. I think Vogue profiled her. You know, the Times Magazine was just falling all over itself in the style section. She was going to all the right parties. And I'm sure she was very charming. Um, you know, she even adopted the kind of black turtleneck thing that, that Steve Jobs made famous. And everyone loved her. They loved this idea of youth and energy and innovation. But nobody was bothering to look beneath the surface to see if this, in fact, was a viable model or even a viable test that she was developing. There's a certain amount of chutzpah when you read the stories now about how much money they raised, how much publicity she was getting, when the reality was that there was nothing there, that they they, they were completely making it up. And yet she pushed it ahead. And as you point out, in our culture, you would have you would have thought there would have been a a, a a meter that would have gone off a BS meter that would have you know, a little bit earlier, but they didn't. Obviously, the um, extraordinary. Now she's facing criminal charges. Okay, let's uh, go back to uh, Pennsylvania 18. Um, boy, I got I have to say that I was uh, highly amused. Actually, a little, almost a little bit surprised by the level of denial on the part of Republicans. We talked about this on the podcast yesterday. The that whole like, hey, there's nothing to see here. This this emerging line that Connor Lamb was some sort of a quasi Republican, which he wasn't. He's he's a moderate Democrat. We haven't seen a moderate Democrat in so long. We don't even know how to recognize them anymore. Like, what is that? What is that strange creature there? Well, it's actually the kind of Democrat that we used to have 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but your sense, uh, Jonathan, last as you start looking at the numbers, I mean, even Nate Silver, who had been just a few weeks ago, kind of saying, hey, guys, maybe this is not going to be as big a wave as people thought. Now he's using words like tsunami to yeah. describe what's going on. Yeah, and the reason is because of Democratic turnout numbers. And when you look at what has happened in the swing from 2016 to the the special elections we've had so far, here, let me just read you some numbers. Uh, the Montana at large, Democratic turnout up 16%. Uh, Alabama Senate up 31 percent, Pennsylvania 18 up 22 percent, Kansas 4th up 23 percent, South Carolina 5th mm. up 16 percent. Like what, what's supposed to happen <laughs> traditionally is Democrats do better in turnout for presidential years and then it sags during midterms, right? This is – and this is one of the things that Repu the Republican Party is sort of built on in, in its right. modern uh, incarnation is that, you know, we may be weak at the national level elections because Dems get bigger turnout numbers, but our people are high turnout voters who come out in the midterms and so we will always be strong in the legislature because of that. Uh, if this happens, uh, if if you look at Democratic turnout up twenty or something like that, it could be. I mean, it, it could. We could go from like you know, hey, blue wave to Hulk smash in in really <laughs> really fast. You know, I saw one uh, one chart this this morning where somebody was was tracing the ads involving the tax cut because of course this was the theory you know five minutes ago that the republicans were going to want or were going to run and, and maybe do pretty well because of the popularity of the tax cuts and apparently in pennsylvania somebody figured out this is not working the, for whatever reason this this story is not working and and the ads touting the tax cut pretty much disappeared which Boy, I would say is extremely bad news. But if you're Paul Ryan, that's kind of what you got right now. Yeah. And and here's the other problem. I mean, this is as good as it gets for Trump. Right. I mean, we've had with the what is unemployment's like three or three mm -hmm. and a half percent. We added a record number of jobs last quarter. Uh, we have the economy moving along very well. The inflation is still under check. The interest rates have not gone up a ton as of yet. And we have no real foreign problems. 
so this is the, this is the land of milk and honey right now. And either this goes on for forever, in which case Trump is really lucky and he gets to float along at 40 percent and then take his take his chances with whatever crazy person the Democrats nominate in 2020. Or, you know, like we start inching towards recession or the Fed increases rates three three periods in a row or there's a foreign crisis and the president's you know chaotic unstableness actually winds up hurting him and hurting or America. Robert Mueller comes up with yeah. more charges. Yeah. I mean, so what I would say is however bad things look right now, this is, I think, the high watermark for the Trump administration, at least for the you know, for the foreseeable future, at least for the next 12 months or so. Christine? I agree. Um, there's really, uh, he, there are so many potential pitfalls in the road ahead for his administration. Um, and I really think congressional Republicans need to take a pause and figure out how they're going to reboot, because this is this is bad. It's, it's just bad news for them. And the fact that the tax cut, which, as you note, is the only thing they've got going for them, is not playing well in all the places it should naturally play well, should have them uh, rethinking their strategy. Yeah, that would be the, the the freak out. Well, you know, it is this when we talked about it yesterday, the 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 unsolvable puzzle that you can't if you're a Republican, you can't win without Trump voters. But you apparently also then can't win if you lash yourself too closely to Donald Trump because he's so toxic among some of these suburban voters. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, dead Russian spies, because uh, this story is uh, is continuing to play out, including this morning. We had a joint statement of uh, Britain, France, Germany and the United States essentially saying, not essentially saying, saying uh, Russia is responsible for this this attack. Um, before that statement came out, I guess I was really struck by how strong Theresa May was in her response, how strong Nikki Haley's rhetoric was, and what a contrast that has been uh, to, uh, to the president of the United States when it comes to going after Russia. Are they all struck by that? I think that's right. I think um, especially Theresa May, who's, you know, she's she's a little beleaguered herself. She's got a pretty weak uh, uh, government right now. But the fact that she she did exactly what you want to see a powerful leader do, a powerful country's leader do, step up and name the problem and point the finger finger directly at the at the person and the nation that that's doing this. That's not to say that the Russian people are to blame here. Of course, this is this is a Putin problem. But I I was impressed. Um, there was something even there was a sort of a hint of Iron Maggie there that I mm -hmm. admired. And and um, uh, it's important that the U.S. be just as firm in supporting what Britain is doing here. No, I, I I had the same impression. Oh, yeah, but going back to the the, the Republicans in Congress, uh, uh, you have a piece up on the uh, Weekly Standard page uh, su suggesting that Mississippi might be in play. That was one of the first headlines I saw this this morning. And <clears throat> you know, look, if you're going into a, a an off year election and you've already lost a an unlosable Senate seat in Alabama, the worst possible headline you want to see is that Mississippi might be in play. What's going on there, Jonathan? Yeah, so David Byler has a great piece up on the site today. And what he says is uh, Mississippi should still be considered likely Republican, uh, still a very, very deep red state. However, in order for it to become a Democratic win uh, and to flip Ted Cochran's seat, they would need a series of events to happen. And the first event they need just happened, which is Chris McDaniel, a Republican state senator who is a 
problematic candidate, I think, has just decided that instead of challenging the uh, other sitting incumbent, he's going to run in a special election here. Mm-hmm. And because of the way this this will work with a whole bunch of people running together in a jungle, uh, jungle primary and then the top two advancing, uh, it's entirely possible that he could wind up crowding out a more electable Republican. And so if he winds up as the nominee and this then, just his presence entices a top-tier Democrat or what passes for a top-tier Democrat in Mississippi into the race and the national environment stays where it is, then all of a sudden you could see literally, again, where anything can happen. And it sounds crazy, right? Or Democrats winning in Mississippi. But but on the other hand, Democrats winning in Alabama sounded crazy too. Okay, but you you said that uh, McDaniel is uh, is problematic, but he hasn't molested young women, right? I mean, he hasn't been removed from the bench. What makes him problematic? Just some dumb things that he said? Yeah, I I think so. He's more more. I would say more on the on the sliding scale with Roy Moore at one end and Kelly Ward at the other. He's more on the Kelly Ward end of the spectrum. See, if I'm a de- if I'm a Democrat, which I am not, um, I would be using, you know, characters like Roy Moore, Kelly Ward, uh, McDaniel and nationalize them, you know, put together, you know, who they are, the kinds of things they've said and use them in, you know, around around the country, and which I'm guessing that they're going to do here. The other point you made before, though, is this question of candidate recruitment. And I think that's one of the real significant uh, pieces of uh, that's one of the significant uh, pieces of fallout from the Pennsylvania election, because it's going to be a lot easier for the Democrats to recruit uh, high quality candidates and much, much more difficult for Republicans right now. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the single biggest thing to come out of yesterday's <clears throat> right. result is that, you know, you got to look in these cases always at the margins and on the margins of the Republican caucus. If you're an incumbent uh, who is in a, a tough seat, you're going to look at this and say, geez, what, life's too short. I'm not going to stand around and get beat over the head for for another nine months uh, and then only to lose by 15 uh, if you are in a, a quasi-safe district, now you look at it and say, boy, it's not quasi-safe and it's going to be harder for you to raise money. And if it's harder for you to raise money, then it's harder for you to, to hold on. And then the other side of it is Dems. If you are an ambitious Democratic politician in a place where ordinarily you would not run and so you'd be thinking about running for state office or something like that, now you say, hey, wait a minute, this this could be used as a stepping stone. I could get in there. And then the money follows the candidates, which is, as you see, these things are dominoes and they cascade on top of one another. Another. And so for all the happy talk, and I think I said this yesterday, mm-hmm. I actually totally understand the professional Republican happy talk mm-hmm. because you can never say as the banker, hey, there's a run on the bank. You always have to pretend <laughs> there's not a run on the bank. So, But whatever, the, whatever they say publicly, that is simply not going to be what goes into the individual considerations of the people actually running for office and that that's at this stage what matters. When it comes to your health, by the way. Brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day, and Quip knows that. They've combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electric brushes. And somebody that travels as much as I do, it is great to be able to bring that along because, frankly, my old electric toothbrush was just too big to pack. Uh, so I'm, so now that I have the, the Quip toothbrush, I can bring it wherever I go. Quip also comes with a mount that that suctions right to your mirror, unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, which is very handy. And because the thing that cleans your mouth should also be clean, Quip's subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just five bucks. And that includes free shipping worldwide. It's backed up by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. 
Now, most toothbrushes do not get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year, but Quick did. You can find out for yourself why. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go right now to getquip.com slash standard, you'll get your first refill pack free with a quick electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard, uh, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. Uh, Jonathan Lass, uh, Christine Rosen, thanks so much for joining me. And thanks for listening to the Daily Standard Pop. Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow and do this all over again.